Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Sunday morning matinee where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. And today we are going to go back to Victorian England and get our detective hats on. We're going to talk about Netflix's new Enola Holmes. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And in our first segment, Justification by Faith, we're going to talk about how Enola Holmes might help us think about life in the church and in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to discuss how Enola Holmes might help us understand the lectionary passages for October 11th, the 19th Sunday after Pentecost. And in our third and final segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. So, Adam, here we are in the age of movies that come to Netflix I have not been to a movie theater since March. I am actually struggling to remember what the last movie was that I saw in the theater. Do you know what yours was? Bad Boys 2. Oh, of course it would be. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Or Bad Boys 3, excuse me. Bad Boys for Life is the one I saw. Okay. Yeah. Well, hopefully that won't be the last taste you ever have of the in-person cinematic experience, Adam. If it was, I wouldn't be mad about it. (laughs) But for now, we have the Netflix pipeline which last week brought us the newest contribution to the massively spiraling world of Sherlock Holmes' properties and adaptations, this one about Sherlock's sister, the eponymous Enola Holmes. Stranger Things' as Millie Bobby Brown produces in and stars as Enola, who is unmistakably her brother's sister, but also full of charismatic resentment at the rules that would tell her as a Victorian woman to stay in her place. She has been raised by her equally enigmatic mother, and when I say equally enigmatic Victorian mother, you will immediately know that this is played by Helena Bottom Carter. And so when mom goes missing, Enola goes off to find her and finds half a dozen other plot points in the course of so doing. Henry Cavill is here as Sherlock, perhaps a tad bit warmer than Benedict Cumberbatch's almost sociopathic version of the character. And Lewis Partridge gets a fair amount of screen time as Enola's romantic interest and a mystery in his own right, the young Lord Tewksbury. Adam, a lot of things happen in this movie. Also, I'm not entirely sure what happened in this movie. (laughs) So I would appreciate a little help. What if you think of Enola Holmes and what did it spark for you for our ongoing work in theology in the church? Right. So this was a wonderful Wednesday night movie. (laughs) That's about right. Yeah. So it was a movie where I sat down. I knew very little about it, except that it existed in some version of the Holmes universe and that it involved his younger sister. Now, the younger sister as a character in the Holmes universe gets sh- shows has shown up in a couple of different places, most notably recently in the BBC Sherlock. Mm-hmm. Um, but Enola is fundamentally different than all of the previous iterations. Um, in part because they are trying to add um, a sort of feminine, world-aware character to what is a sort of hermetically sealed vision of Victorian England, whereby 
Holmes solves all of the crimes, but there is no indication that Sherlock Holmes has any real effect upon the larger culture and um, the very many people who live on the margins or live in the impressed, um, you know, the impressed parts of the culture. So Holmes gets to do his thing and never really care about something. And so I know that there was some sort of round table where a group of movie execs got together and sat down and said, look, let's, let's update this for our that is increasingly politically aware and, um, and did so, I think, rightfully recognizing that there are generations that are coming of age right now that are pretty awesome. I'm going to just go out and say, like, their, their ability to try and change the world, their awareness of the world that's being handed to them, their uh, assessment of history is incredibly advanced, far more advanced than I was ever when I was that age. I have a, I have a, a, a young woman in my congregation in high school who um, has been on the front line of getting young people to be poll workers in Philadelphia during this next upcoming election. Like they are wonderfully present in the world and not really ready to just affirm everything that their adult parents say to them. And so in that way, I think Enola Holmes is a product of the moment. I think that she is designed to help young folks find a um a detective because every generation gets their own i think um who is not just logic and uh, attention but also has a heart and has a sort of moral compass and code um and to that end i found millie bobby brown in her performance of enola holmes quite winning um she's pretty charismatic um i was I always enjoyed it when she was on the screen. And at the end of the day, I think like you, I had a whole bunch of questions about some of the plot points and some of the relationships and what they were supposed to signify. But I think at the end of the day, as I finished the movie, I, I watched it with my wife and I looked over to her and I go, that was nice. And right now in the world that we're living in, can, like nice is okay. Nice is good. And nice that is at once a distraction and also a sincere and genuine call to promote the well being and human flourishing of all peoples. I can get behind that. That's that's my that's my basic take. But I have a lot of other ideas with that with respect to the plot. What about you? What was your basic uh disposition upon watching this movie? But I think it's similar. I think you're right that this movie is doing some interesting work with the property of Holmes and the Holmes universe by introducing a character who uh, allows them to play around with the detective-y side of Sherlock um, and and place and and has and and, and and operates in that world in which. Um, mysteries are out there dots need to be connected and a Holmes is here to do that work um but also does it as i think you're rightly you, you rightly say with a with an air towards genuine social change uh and genuine compassion for mm. uh the world around that Sherlock notably uh tends not to have because of his deep stoicism uh, the 
I think that movie makes a lot of sense on the drawing board, and I'm glad they did it. I'm not entirely convinced that the movie that they made holds together particularly well. Um, there are pieces of it that work. Um, Millie Bobby Brown is a star, uh, and, and and I absolutely loved her yeah. charisma yeah, all true. the way through this. Um, and and I, some of the criticism I've read about this movie focuses on the romantic plot line as being sort of the the fish out of water in this story. I don't entirely buy that. I thought that the story with Lord Tewksbury kind of ends up being really central to the plot and really central to the mystery in some interesting ways. I felt kind of, and I will spoil things a little bit, I felt a little betrayed by the last 15 minutes of this movie in which the central motivating factor, which is go solve the mystery of where your mother has gone, is like not solved. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the red herring, right? That's and, the, and the precipitating it, event that, that isn't actually the point of the movie, yeah. Right, and they, but they spend a lot of time setting that up for it to not yeah, go do. anywhere. And they spend a lot of time asking questions about it and provoking things about it that they never resolve. Nor do they really like set it up as sequel bait, which I would also have totally understood. So like, I am left not knowing a lot of really key things about mom. <laughs> And I don't want to get too specific, but that I feel like the movie covenanted with me to reveal to me in some way. And and if there had been like the teaser sequence that says, hey, yeah, we're going to go, um, we're going to go talk about this in Enola Holmes too, fine. But that was not really the way that was set up either. So I, I was really enjoying this. And then in the last 20 minutes, I, I ended up looking at my wife and going, what, what just happened? Well, and my sense is that they were trying to make this distinction, right? Because on the one hand, there's Sherlock. Well, there's Mycroft, and he's kind of the he's one of the the bad guys in the movie because he's a he's basically a government bureaucrat. Um, but really, the 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 dichotomy between Sherlock and uh, and Nola's mother is is the central one, which is in what way is Enola going to take from each of them? Sherlock being the sort of um, uh, hyper-scientific uh, deductive reasoner and then her mother more of a sort of um, you know passionate activist who's willing to engage in some measure of violence to make sure that you know social change can happen my sense is that by placing Enola as the protagonist and therefore hero of this story that she has both, right? She is both very clever and wily. She engages in all sorts of um, uh, in all sorts of costumes and disguises, a la Sherlock Holmes. And yet, there is this moment where she makes a decision, and she makes a decision from the heart to go and try and save Lord Tewksbury rather than find her mother. Mm -hmm. And it's and it doesn't make a lot of sense. And then she knows it's going to put her in danger, but she has some sort of moral code that requires her to go and seek this one the 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 safety of this one person and, and in some ways then she tells this very interesting little fable of her own life where she goes and finds a, a sheep or some animal that's on the cliff and she goes out to save it and her mother says you can't save that one that one like it's too it's too dangerous you might die in the saving of it and i mean it was i think it's a clear 
uh, allusion to the parable of the lost sheep about the one sheep who goes and and whether or not like and this good shepherd that goes and finds it and tries to bring it down bring it home which is to say that even even the the liberal crazy liberal activists have trouble seeing the individual in need because they're always focusing on everyone all at once and I think that there's a there's a good critique in there. I'm not sure that this is the place that you're going to find like right. a great critique of it. Um, but it was nice that the critique of Sherlock wasn't fully like you need someone to be an activist in order to like actually solve the real crimes of the world, the systemic crimes of the world. Yeah, and I, and I will say, despite my criticism, I really enjoyed watching this movie. I found it pleasurable. Like, it's beautiful to look at. It's snappily made. The The characters and the dialogue are really charismatic. Yeah, the art it. direction is really interesting, too. Yeah. yeah. I, like... I, I really enjoyed my experience of watching this. And so, I, for me, it did the movie help me think about theology, church, and the world in the way that, in the kind of high bar that we set for ourselves on this podcast? I mean... I could certainly like stretch and make up some stuff and make some connections that could be fruitful or not. But I, I also feel like, and, and I think you kind of already alluded to this, that maybe this is not a movie that had to help me think about theology church in the world today, but that was okay too. Mm. You know, we, we have heavily on this show allegorized a lot of really dumb movies and part of me just kind of <laughs> wants to let this one be a dumb movie. And, and we spent a lot of time at National Treasure. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> and so the, the, the way I'm thinking about it is like this movie feels like a worship service that doesn't entirely come together, but still works. Right. And like well, like I... those services that you spend so much time planning, but then at the end of the day, like the anthem really doesn't have anything to do with what the scripture was. <laughs> And there's like a minute from mission that gets tacked on that is totally unrelated to anything else we're talking about. And it feels in the process of, for me, in the process of leading those services, I almost feel like I need to apologize. Like this one was kind of a grab bag, folks. Sorry, we couldn't make one metaphor stretch through the whole thing. And invariably, half a dozen people reached out and were like, that service was amazing. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, yeah. they don't get caught by the, the whole picture of it. They get caught by by some it's little piece, by a moment, yeah. or an image, or a chorus, or a rhythm. Yeah, a and I think that that's, a, that's such a good it, analogy for this. So, because it's, it's not... Yeah. It's not going to... This movie's not going to bowl you over. But it's got a lot of really lovely and tender moments in it that I quite enjoy. Um, and... And... In addition to that, like the genre helps in the same way that like you know what's gonna happen, right? Like the, the the conventions are there. They're just adding a new character into an already preset convention. In the same way that like most worship services at a church are going to say static, right? Like they they aren't gonna change that much. And so even if you don't create a worship service that has some measure of internal coherence, the genre conventions will allow people from to pass from one piece to the next piece sure. without worrying too much about whether or not the transition actually worked. And I think that's one of the great things about genre literature and detective 
um, stories in particular is because um, it, once you get to think hard about the plot ma machinations, but you don't have to think that hard. Right. Um, and, uh, and you get to generally the important part of any detective novel is you just want to spend time with the detective. Is this right. person which you want to spend time with? And usually because they have either some, you know, supernatural ability a la Holmes, or they have some sort of moral code, or they have a sort of brokenness that is attractive to anybody, right? Um, that 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 is that attracts you. And so, I, I was actually trying to think. Okay, so where does where does a Nola Holmes sort of fall within my um, my detective continuum? And have you read any of the Walter Mosley books, the the Easy Rollins stuff? So the the Devil in a Blue Dress came out. Um, the 90s with Don Cheadle and Denzel Washington. Um, that is a great movie. It's an incredible movie, and it's the only real adaptation of any of the Easy Rollins stories. And it's it's tremendous. And if you haven't seen Devil in a Blue Dress, you should. Because both Cheadle and Denzel give great performances in it. Um, but what makes Easy Rollins so interesting is that he is um, he's smart as hell, but he's also attuned to the world, right? Like he he has this sense of conscience that presses him back into things, and he will frequently make decisions on behalf of others, knowing that he's about to walk into a um, a situation that's going to be dangerous for him. And he could have walked away, like he could have, like he he always has the chance to walk away, but he always sticks his neck out for somebody else. Um, and I think like when I was watching this this particular story it it was important that enola has that same type of conscience that she cares about the world that she wants that she's willing to go and seek the safety of the one even though it's going to put her in danger and make sure that she doesn't solve the mystery that she's seeking to solve and i don't think it's um i don't think it's coincidence that enola holmes and easy rollins are both marginalized folks in the particular communities of which they're living. Uh, Easy Rollins is a black man in, right. um, in post-war Los Angeles, and, uh, and Enola Holmes is a young girl in Victorian-era England. Um, and I think that that's attractive to me, just as, as a detective story. But what about you? Okay, so here's my question for you as I was watching this, Matt. We've, we've just watched this. It's another Sherlock Holmes portrayal. Now, Henry Cavill doesn't do a lot in this movie, I'm going to be honest. Like, I think he's kind of underutilized. Um, and I'm not really sure what he's bringing to the table as Holmes. Like, he hasn't brought anything new. And one of the things about Cumberbatch, when he started doing Holmes a while ago, as you alluded to at the beginning, is that he played Holmes as a sociopath. Right. Well, and he's uh, he's he's pulling on House, right? Uh, like, it's it's... Gregory House was a Sherlock Holmes adaptation except in name placed in a medical context and then Benedict Cumberbatch brings it back to Sherlock and, and does the same like misanthropic dissociative genius character. They're, they're in the same pond. Yeah. Right. So, so as you look at the, at Enola Holmes as a, a detective and her, and Henry Cavill as a particular Sherlock, where do they exist in your continuum? Do you, do you have favorite detectives? Do you have ones that you care about? Um, 
And is there a particular Holmes portrayal that that's important to you, whether in name, like as the particular property of Sherlock Holmes or uh, in the sort of shape and form a la yeah. Gregory? Well, I think there's a distinction between um, detective characters or Holmes characters that we like uh, and detective stories that we like. I, I mean, I love those early seasons of the BBC Sherlock adaptation, even mm. though Sherlock himself is totally unlikable. Right. And I think part of what it's doing is teasing out the distinction between like, okay, the character that you like the character that you think you like because he solves things really well, actually the act of solving things this well eventually makes you unlikable. Yeah, that's smart. And so I can, I watch that show to enjoy watching him solve things, but I don't actually enjoy him. And I think we, there are plenty of other detective characters in like all kinds of miscellaneous B movie detective things that whose character we might quite enjoy, even though it's less fun to watch them solve things. Um, we, we get to watch Enola Holmes solve things a little bit, but it's it, this movie. And I think you're, you're right to note the genre convention of it. Like, because this movie exists in that genre, it doesn't have to sit with the plot machinations of how things get solved. And instead it can live in, the story beats of who she is as she is solving them. And it lets us play with the mm -hmm. character of this young woman in Victorian England in really interesting, compelling ways, instead of just like sitting in the, the way that her brain turns and connects point A to point B in some kind of beautiful mind esque visual sequence, which is what Sherlock does all the time. Right. And I, th I think that's what, what makes genre really useful there. It just gives us shorthand. Right. Do you have some favorite detectives? Uh, yeah, well, I've got lots. You know, I think um, I, there, I'm impartial to the cozies. I, my wife and I have been watching um, Endeavor, which is the, um, the prequel, so to speak, of Inspector Morse, which was a very long-running and beloved BBC um, detective. And Endeavor is the Morse story told from the beginning of his um, his time as a as a detective in Oxford. Um, and so there are those particular cozies. You know, there I always make a distinction in um, in detective novels between um, your city detectives and your village detectives. Your village detective is is a more conservative genre piece. Your your city detective is a sort of more um, um, grisly. Yeah. type of detective piece right like you need a you need a los angeles you need a new york you need a hong kong you need a london right to tell your um your grisly story about the shadows and about the terrible monsters that exist within them this is um, a, this is david fincher seven yeah exactly yeah. and so um he, but then there are all the cozies right this is your agatha christie your your poirots mm -hmm. your 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 people where there's a manor house somewhere in the country and there's a dead body, right? And you right. have to come get to the bottom of it. Um, with respect to the sort of like city mysteries, um, I love Lawrence Block's Matthew Scudder books, which if you ever get a chance to read those are, are awesome. It, the um, Scudder, it starts with the book called The Sins of the Father, but then um, in 1986, 
uh, block rights when the sacred gin mill closes, which actually adds, um, it allows Scudder by the end of the book to admit that he's an alcoholic and he enters into a 12 step program, which wow. if you read like the first six books coming up to that, it is one of the more satisfying and like moving moments in a genre piece that I've ever read. Hmm. Um, and so I, 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 if you stay with his, that character for a while, that was recently, he was recently portrayed by Liam Neeson in a movie. Um, I forget what the movie was called. Um, something about the tombstones we'll walk among the tombstones or something like that. Um, the and then I think lately there are like I think Knives Out the 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 Blanc character sure. that uh, that um, uh, the the name of the director is escaping me um, uh, Ryan Johnson um, creates in Knives Out was particularly like lovely yeah. in a way so so those are those are a few of the ones that I I care most about. Um, no, but my, my... E. Rollins is another one. Like I, I, I taught a class once on on detective fiction, <laughs> just at Villanova because they they were like, "Will you just teach an upper division theology course?" And I said, "Yes, but only if we get to read detective novels." <laughs> my favorite Sherlock Holmes adaptation, and I think it might be the urtext for the BBC Sherlock and the Gregory House in this sort of dispassioned vision of it, is of course these several episodes of Star Trek: The Next Generation in which on the holodeck Sherlock is played by Lieutenant Commander Data, the android. <laughs> yeah. And I think you could probably trace some lines through, and of course it would be the case that you would pull out that, like, the the, the unhuman character, the, the, the Spock to the nth degree character, to play that purely analytical role that can't quite find empathetic connection, uh, as we see played out here and, un un and unearthed here with the Enola character. It also gets me to just a little bit of a soapbox that I want to stand on for a second, which is yeah. that one of the great things about Sherlock Holmes is that there are a bajillion different visions of this character. And there have been a bajillion adaptations of it in all kinds of different media. And one of the reasons for that is that Sherlock Holmes exists in a time before the enforcement of modern copyright standards and, ex and, and uh, extensions. Um, by, by coming at the very beginning of the 20th century, Conan Doyle gets in just under the wire of um, when um, American copyright law, which keeps not letting properties expire, um, kicks into effect, which is roughly around the first initiation of Mickey Mouse into the, into the public stream. So after Mickey Mouse comes into public stream every time mickey mouse comes up for copyright expiration disney lobbies and has those terms full further extended uh so that we haven't had a new thing enter into the public domain it's supposed to enter in after a period of time after the death of its author but we haven't had a new thing enter the public domain in a very long time conan doyle being one of the the yeah. last things that could be there this generates all kinds of really cool creative stuff because now all kinds of creators can use Sherlock to do all kinds of things. And all of the good genre work you're talking about, all the ways in which people can use the shorthand of that character to then go and do their cool independent vision is possible because you can glom on to the recognizable name of Sherlock Holmes and then do your crazy thing, whether it's 
Star Trek holodecks in space or Enola homes here or whatever it is are possible because you're not having to pay millions of dollars to an estate somewhere. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in our, in our postlude, but, um, you know, for most of human history, we had these oral practices of, of handing down stories and characters. And, um, and at some point we, we, as a human, uh, as, as people in the West mainly conceived of an author and that author was then the one who was able to give an, who who was given full control over their characters. And, there's value to this. There's economic value to this. And there are good reasons to, to try and consider why that would be important. Um, on the other hand, there is, there are things to be lost and, and some of the most vibrant stories are the ones that have been retrieved. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not advocating for the total abolition of copyright protection. Uh, I, but I am <laughs> saying that property as a whole, <laughs> I, but, yeah. but, but, uh, but I am saying that like the, the time extensions on this have become draconian and are, 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 disin- are, are inhibiting folks from getting to do the creative expression that they could do with all kinds of other properties, just the way we've seen with Sherlock. There's a really interesting side note to this, which is that there are there's a small section of Conan Doyle's Sherlock legacy, which exists in the 1920s, after Conan Doyle went to war and came back. The final stories of Sherlock Holmes that he wrote are still covered under copyright huh. because they are they came right on the other side of where that seam is in our history. Those stories portray a slightly different Sherlock because Doyle has gone to war and has come back and the the Holmes that appears is much more or slightly more emotional and slightly more wounded and much and slightly more human. So much so that, that the Cavill's portrayal that we see in Enola Holmes is considerably closer to that portrayal, the latter day stories, where he's not quite the the distant sociopath we see in Benedict, but we see something a little warmer, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So much so that um, Arthur Conan Doyle's estate sued Netflix earlier this year because the Enola Holmes adaptation was clearly lifting material from the parts of Holmes's stories that were still under copyright, even though they were not lifting material, what they were lifting, if at anything, was a Holmes vision that had humanity to yeah. it. Yeah, a copyright vibe. Yeah, so we'll put the link to this in the show notes, but there's a Verge story about this suit, and it's fascinating, both just as like a treatment of how copyright works and also just to figure out, like, you mean that some aspects of his personality are under copyright and some aren't? And what does that tease out about how to play with this character? It's fascinating. Yeah, that's fascinating, Matt. Let's move to scripture. But before we do, let's say how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian Century. And we want you to see the good things that they're doing at the, uh, at the magazine right now. Uh, they recently got a new editor, friend of the show, Jessica Messman, who is there now, um, and we're so excited to see how um, how she can influence the uh, that magazine and the good work that they do. Um, recently, another friend of the show, Nate Stuckey, had an excellent article about food and food insecure time of COVID. Um, I encourage you to go and read that. Also, if you are listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Adam, let's talk about preaching. 
that the texts for this upcoming lectionary are from year A, October 11th, deep into ordinary time. We've got Aaron and the people making golden idols at the bottom of Mount Horeb. We have the beautiful eschatological vision of Isaiah 25. We've got the 23rd Psalm, if you want to talk about some sheep. We got some parting words from Paul to the Philippians and the parable of the wedding banquet in Matthew. Adam, what does Anola Holmes have to do with any of these scripture passages? So there, there is that moment in the movie where Anola talks about going and rescuing this sheep and, and places her in the place of shepherd. And so if you wanted to take a look at Psalm 23 in this sort of role of the shepherd, I, I encourage you to do so. I have talked about Psalm 23 many, many times on this podcast, so I'm going to then talk a little bit longer about the Matthew parable, about this wedding banquet, in part because it's so troubling in many ways and, and, and difficult. I want to talk about this banquet from the perspective of clothing and from the perspective that in the movie Enola Holmes, Enola does a lot of cross-dressing where she will don the dress of generally like the impoverished class boys um, and the ways in which Enola cross-dresses into class, I think matters here um, because in this parable you have um, you have this wedding banquet, no one comes and it's uh, and finally they get people to come. But then at the very end, there's this, it's almost a coda. It's almost the very end. And it's the troubling part of the, the parable because someone shows up and the master of the, the banquet comes and says, hey, how'd you get in here without wearing the right clothes? Which is the first kind of indication that clothing is matters to this party. <laughs> and because the person's not wearing the right clothes, they're immediately thrown out into the street and there's gnashing of teeth. And um, and this is a troubling moment because it, it, it doesn't quite fit with what feels like the rest of the passage. And the way that I've always considered this passage is that in some ways that the, the clothes come with the invitation and then someone arrives and they believe that they can show up without actually wearing the clothes. Um, and what Enola Holmes made me think about with this in particular is um, what if in this parable, the clothes that came with the invitation were a clothes of the people of, of, of people who below, who exist in a lower socioeconomic class than you do, or they were clothes of people who you were like kind of found disgusting. <laughs> And so you were like, you know, this party seems kind of awesome, but I really don't want to wear these clothes because I, I don't want to be ultimately associated with the rest of these people. And I think when you watch Enola Holmes, part of her charm is not is the clothes that she wears actually give her some measure of insight into the people who wear them. I think it's part of how the movie tries to signify that she recognizes and understands and is therefore able to empathize with the group of people who are wearing the clothes themselves. So they're not just clothes to hide her. They're clothes that are actually having this function on her character and on herself that she begins to understand what's necessary. Right. So um, she has to she has to at one point dress up as a lady and suddenly sort of understands like all of the terrible things that ladies have to go through. And yet it's this, this corset that she wears that, that saves her. 
Um, and in other places, she dresses up as a sort of like street urchin who is selling papers and is able to um, to evade Sherlock Holmes, who is supposed to be the 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 most aware and attentive human being in the planet. But even Sherlock Holmes doesn't care about the urchin, doesn't deign to even look at him. And so she's able to sort of understand the 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 ways in which those who have power are able to ignore those without. And I think that's all of a piece with respect to how she begins to understand and unravel mysteries. With respect to the parable, I it makes me think about like why wouldn't the person put on the clothes? And why that is such a why that's so offensive to the master. And and so that's what I'm kind of noodling on. Does that make any sense to you, Matt? It does. I, I mean, I, I've been, I, I immediately went to that bit of this parable thinking about Enola Holmes and these lectionary texts as well, because as you know, like costume is so critically important to this film and she is constantly in the position of swapping out outfits, paying people for their outfits, using outfits as a way of, of finding access. And I, and I think you're right that with those outfits comes this sense of empathy for the different people whose roles she then occupies or pretends to occupy. I, I think the Matthew text, I mean, the coda on that Matthew text is really jarring because it feels so deeply inhospitable uh, that you know, you know, Luke, <laughs> yeah. Luke's, totally. ver Luke's version of this parable is, I think, the version that we carry around in our subconscious where... Some people refuse the invitation, and so the master says, well, forget them, go out into the countryside and find anyone who wants to come, and everyone is welcome. And it lands on everyone is welcome, um, and screw the people who didn't want it, this gate is open to all of God's kingdom. And then, and, and I think that is the vision of this that feels easy for us yeah and then matthew comes back and says okay that's fine but you still have to behave when you get here like there are still expectations around being part of this table and and what you do matters and it has me thinking as a church about like so much of our language are certainly kind of the university presbyterian but i think broadly kind of mainland progressive language is about welcome and hospitality. Part of that is the, the, the work that we have tried to do and stumbled and failed in doing to make sure that folks of different racial and sexual and gender identities have a space and a place in our communities. And still, Matthew was there to say, okay, but, but it, we still have some expectations. God welcomes all and also God expects some things. And and it pushes to me on like, are, are the doors of University Presbyterian Church, is the life of University Presbyterian Church truly open to anyone who wants mm. to come aboard? If John Q. White supremacist comes to UPC and wants to do wants to lead a Sunday school class is that something we're going to say yes to because God welcomes all well no 
we're going to draw the line and say, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. from a curricular standpoint that is not consistent with our faith tradition, we're not going to allow that to happen. There is a limit to the hospitality that we offer because we expect you to dress a certain way. And, and I think figuring out what that boundary is, is really important work. We had a, um, uh, a, a, a woman, I'll, sor- I'll sort of adapt this story. We had a woman join our church earlier this summer uh, who's South African. And she, uh, we had her fill out some boilerplate paperwork and she listed her, uh, the church of her that she was coming from as the South African Dutch Reformed Church, which was during the height of apartheid, the church that was the intellectual architect of apartheid but in the past 20 years has done a serious about face and the Dutch Reformed Church is a really interesting, complicated place that I would expect someone interesting and complicated to come from and to be well at home at UPC. Unfortunately, in our administrative channels, we ended up with a typo on the form before it went to the session. And so now it said that she came from the Orthodox Dutch Reformed Church and she was, uh, and so I have, I have, I'm at a session meeting where this paperwork is here and it's, it's just, it's a routine matter for us, but mm-hmm. I've got elders there. One person who knows South Africa pretty well. And is like, are we really, really letting in someone from the Orthodox Dutch reformed church? And then everyone else in sessions, their radar start to go off. Like, well, what is this? We weren't even paying attention. And they start Googling, Googling around. And sure enough, there's like, the Orthodox Dutch Reformed Church is the denomination that didn't want to get modern when apartheid fell. And they're the like, they are the white supremacists remnant of what that denomination was. And now the session is having this conversation about like, doesn't it matter? Like, like, yeah, don't you have to dress somehow? Like, doesn't it, don't the clothes matter in some way for who gets to come in? Uh, which was a really important conversation for us to have, except that it didn't actually apply because it was just a typo. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's, I mean, I think that's, that's the point. It, because the truth, like, as you said, the clothing does matter. It it really does. And the thing that drives me nuts is people who continually, or churches that continually say, we are radically hospitable. We will welcome everybody. And I'm like, no, you won't. No, you won't. And you don't want to, and like, you don't mean it. And you don't mean it. And it's not like, because hospitality isn't, doesn't mean that you welcome anybody. Like hospitality is always specific. And that's the truth of it, right? Like that, that you have to consider this person and what they're coming in. Because there might be someone who's come from an Orthodox Dutch Reformed Church, and they've had between their flight from Johannesburg sure. to Austin, Texas, has had a radical change of heart. Sure, absolutely. You know, and so you like to to just focus on the clothing is a problem too, but to not focus on the clothing at all is also a problem. And to like you have to be able to say like who are we being hospitable to? Because you can't be hospitable to everybody. It's just not how it works. Because and and I think this is like this is part of the you know to to call back that um that uh the the parable of the lost sheep is there are these hundred sheep and the shepherd knows when one is gone 
which is crazy, right? It doesn't make any sense. Like all the sheep look the same. How are you, in, unless you're counting them all the time, how would you know that one is gone anyway? But at least in this world of parables for Jesus, like the shepherd knows because the shepherd knows everybody. And that I, one of the things that's sort of astounding to me about that parable is that that sheep is the center of the shepherd's universe, just like every, all the other sheep. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we as churches so often will look at the, the, the flock and say, well, the flock is the flock and I have to take care of the flock. And if one leaves, uh oh, well, too bad. I can't endanger the 99. And the radical thing about this Matthew parable and the other, and the parable in Luke and Luke 15 is that Jesus is like, why not? <laughs> right. Like yeah. that one matters. Because if you only ever focus on the whole, that's not really how love works either. Right. Like, you can say you love everyone or you're hospitable to everyone, but really you're not because that's not what we ultimately want. We want to be loved for us and we want to have hospitality directed specifically. And so we need that. Like, and so we can't overlook the, the, the wedding garment. Like it, I think it really matters. I mean, I think the other thing that I, I think about too, in this, in this passage with respect to Noah Holmes is also that Aaron, Aaron, Aaron's like a, such a good priest, right? Like he's a good minister. He listens to everybody. They all vote <laughs> and like, right. and he's like, they're all like, we got to, like they've been monotheistic for like two weeks. Like it's not like, right. <laughs> and, and Moses is up on this top of the mountain and what the hell is he doing up there? Right? Like he's gone. There's like fire and smoke around it. And they're like, I don't know if he's coming back. And the anxiety of the group of people leads Aaron to be like, okay, let's fashion some idols, you know, plan B let's work it out. And I love that about him. And I, and I think like that, that priestly imagination is in some ways the, the necessary balance on the Holmesian confidence in the answer. Yeah. Well, there's a bit of it. That's like, you know, Enola is left by everyone she's left you know she's younger than her brothers they have gone off to the city then she's left by her mom at the very beginning of the movie and then there are very then there are moments in that film where you can sort of sense her having to say to them like you left me you don't get to have a say anymore and i feel a little bit of that in aaron and moses there right like you went up to the mountain and we didn't know what the heck was going on. And we just saw all this stuff. Like, it looks scary. We're just trying to deal. You you, you abandoned us. You don't get to say. And I, I think... And they don't there's... have the Torah. They don't have law. They don't have anything. <laughs> all right, Adam, let's wrap it up. It's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes. And it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, what's your postlude for the week? Um, I, I've got two brief ones. Um, the, the first is that I'm teaching a class right now on storytelling and preaching and um, and two books that I have um, happened upon and have been reading a lot lately um, are books of folktales which I just want to commend to people like the, the reading of folktales is, is amazing. And, and it's a lot like in Sherlock Holmes, it is the handing down of characters and tropes and conventions 
to allow different people to tell important stories. Um, two that I would commend to people that uh, that I found um, really important are the first is Grandfather Speaks, which is um, the folktales of the Lenape Lenape tribe, um, which is the the Delaware tribe of of where I live, and um, and is the tribe of the um, of the area where I'm teaching right now. And so um, I would I, I just encourage students to just kind of get to know the stories of this land, right? Like, and I think recognizing these stories, um, not only are they fascinating and like sort of beautiful and, and poignant in their own way, Grandfather Speaks is itself a, a monumental work of scholarship of, of the type of story curation of people who are trying to repiece these together. And so Grandfather Speaks, um, uh, and then the, the other is um, by, um, is edited by Maria Tatar and um, Henry Louis Gates, and it's the annotated African American folktale. Um, it's a beautiful book, and it is um, full of not just single stories, but tell it, it it completes the iterations of those stories as told by different people within history and as they've been written down, and and the annotations of them are just really bright and and um, and and thoughtful. Um, not to mention that there are a couple of articles in the front that give you a sense of sort of like folk tales as an area of study, especially African-American folk tales in this country that are, it's incredibly illuminating. And I know that there are a lot of churches that are trying to figure out how to incorporate um, sort of anti-racist education into their, uh, into their programming. And what I would encourage people to do is, uh, is to not leave behind this tradition of storytelling that existed within um, African-American experience in this country. And, and you can't go wrong with the African-American and the annotated African-American folktale book. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to say is that um, the, the website, the ringer uh, just uh, ranked the hundred best Radiohead songs, which is like um, something that I spent an ungodly amount of time reading yesterday and pondering over whether or not this was right or wrong. Um, <laughs> But um, as I was talking to the people who I always talk about these types of things with, I have like a, 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 a Google Hangout that I talk with like four or five people about, and we were chatting about it. And um, uh, and it was so fascinating to see the ways in which these songs have stayed with people and they have lodged deep in the hearts of people. And there was one instance where someone was had heard something really, truly terrible and um, was reminded to turn back to the to the beauty of this particular corpus of music and as we sort of fought online together about whether or not the ranking was correct it was such a communal experience where we also shared like the radiohead shows that we went to the way like where we were when we heard kid a for the first time and like how like the the first synth chord of everything in its right place like has stayed with us uh, and so i just I commend not just the music of Radiohead to you, but also any music that can transport you back into a community of love and safety and that of growth. Um, I encourage you to go listen to. So those are the things that I've been thinking about. What about you, Matt? So not to outshine the journalistic standards of the ringer, but I want to talk a little seriously for a second about the amazing scientific journalism that is coming out of the Atlantic this year um, because of COVID and in the wake of COVID. And I, and I wanna kind of bracket it with two pieces. 
Um, one is that I will forever remember where and when I was when I read on March 10th of 2020, uh, Yasha Monk's piece there, Cancel Everything, which argued persuasively before it was cool to do so that the science said we had to shut down immediately. It was totally haunting and prophetic in that way that uh, to go back and read it now feels um, like a weird punch in the gut, a different kind mm. of punch in the gut than the one it delivered at the time when what it was saying was so bizarre and countercultural. Uh, and that piece will sit with me. The other, the one that I would pair with it, is a fascinating piece that just dropped today by uh, Zenep Tufekchki uh, called The Overlooked Variable, which is um, her read of the new science in COVID around um, super spreaders and the way in which we now understand and are beginning to understand that not every COVID positive person spreads COVID at the same rate as everybody else. And therefore, some of the ways in which we have talked about transmission are kind of broken um, because actually it is a small segment of the population that spreads at an exponential rate. And it introduces this, this degree of randomness into how we think about contact tracing and how we think about clusters mm. and how we think about any kind of adaptation and treatment here that is fascinating. The science is fascinating, but in both cases, what I want to lift up is just the incredible journalism of it. They are both uh, high-level academics who are digesting really high-level information and delivering it in such a, a compelling and accessible and relatable and clear and informative way. I just, um, they don't need my accolades, but I'm gonna give them anyway. Uh, and if you are not following along your COVID news through long reads in the Atlantic, I highly, highly recommend that you add it to your diet when you get a chance. Yeah, so how, how have these helped you make decisions at the church, you think, Matt? Well, I, I mean, the, the overlooked variable is just out, so I'm still chewing on it. Though as I was reading it, I was certainly thinking, like, what is this? what does this mean for us in terms of outdoor events in terms of different kinds of safety precautions. It's in, in some ways it's, it's not immediately applicable because we don't immediately know who might be acting in a super spreader capacity. Hmm. And so it's, it's, it's not quite as transparently helpful as that. Uh, unfortunately, as she will admit, um, cancel everything was, I mean, entirely in my imagination as we were progressing through that week in March and trying to figure out what the heck was about to happen. And the the preponderance of caution that we undertook and that a lot of other places did for me was heavily fed by by that call. Um, because I, it was so clear yeah. and so well documented and just alarmist enough to raise the alarm. Great. That's fascinating. I'm, I'm going to go and reread those um, today. So, but I think that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page to discuss how we got it wrong, how we got it right, whether or not you loved Enola Holmes and thought we should love it more. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter at the show at SundayMorningMatinate.com. 
Special thanks, of course, to our Christian Century and fine editing skills to Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and to the band Timothy and the Chalamets. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt.